Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Hi, um, my name is Michael Gates and I'm calling in today from Helsinki, Finland. The most interesting thing near to me is the frozen sea. So it's been very cold. I even saw people walking on the, the sea just a couple of days ago. I'm not sure if it's still possible today. Uh, what about my most fantastic job or work experience? Well, I actually have two. One was working and teaching with the Ministry of Finance in the Cook Islands, which is a fascinating place, the, the probably the most exotic location I've worked in. And then before I was in this field, I was in radio in the 1980s and worked with many, many pop stars. So I got to meet a lot of my idols who were particularly ones who were famous in the early to the mid 1980s, which was uh, fascinating. Who's my mentor? Well, if I had to choose one mentor in my life, it would be my tutor at Oxford, where I read English literature. And he became a very good friend of mine. And his name was Michael Gearin Tosh. And uh, he was uh, a fantastic mentor, not just for English literature, but also for life, really. What do I envision in the future that features advances? Um, well, I thought I wouldn't choose anything technical. Uh, thinking about the world today, I think we could all do with a lot more forgiveness. You know, the world is so polarized, both in the UK, where I'm from originally, in the US and in other countries, that I think forgiveness of people and of ideas where people have different ideas from us is and to be able to talk about them um, equitably and without uh, argument uh, or making it personal is very important. What would I take with me if I was stranded on an island? What would my top three must-haves be? Well, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not including uh, food here. Of course, food is important, but I've chosen luxuries. Uh, one would be a piano, because I play the piano. The second would be my guitar, um, my Fender Telecaster. I love playing electric guitar. And then the complete works of Shakespeare. If I could take more than one book, then I would also take uh, the complete works of Tolstoy, but I don't think that would fit in one book. It's too long. That is uh, splendid. Thank you. That That's the most involved I've had anyone bring themselves into the conversation. So thank <laughs> well, you very thank much. You. What does the world look like in organizations when they're trying to get a handle on a remote workforce, a remote work culture? Well, it's a, a burning question these days. The, uh, the medium of remote is what I would call rather linear and transactional. And I think we really need to engage with people and put the human element back into things. And you know, when we're feeling exhausted, what's the emotional temperature of our team? How can we get people engaged at a distance? And uh, you know, I could go on for three hours. Emotional on. 
temperature. So that spins off the concept of emotional intelligence, right? And it's really a, a climate test. What's our temperature today? How are the people, right? And that's really what you're talking about is how do one, how do we, that, and that's empathy. I, I'm going to use the label empathy there. That's having empathy for each other in this contextual or this transactional linear world. And I, I think you're spot on with that description because it is, it, it is totally, I'm, we're, we're together for a purpose and, and that's it. Right. So how do you make room for other things? Absolutely. Well, I mean, there are different ways one can do it, but I think it's quite important to spend a little bit of time before each meeting really starts in asking people how are they feeling, in really listening to people and getting a sense of uh, what their feelings are about things, because it's far too easy to just plunge straight into the task and the process and that little bit of engagement helps a lot. So you bring up a, an interesting concept. I, I have a military background, so I usually talked in bullets. You know, I talked in fragments of sentences, usually around transaction or action. A friend of mine said, you know, when you send out an email, you may want to consider doing it in a sandwich. And I'm bringing this up because you're, this is what you're saying, right? Mm to put two slices of bread on the meat of the sandwich. So mm. she said, whenever you write your email, what you think you want to say, don't send it, give it a minute, go back to it. And what would be the top piece of bread and what would be the bottom piece of bread to sandwich that action item? Mm. And, you know, Hey, how you doing? You know, make, make some conversation of some sort. I love the idea of when you're at your next meeting, just say, stop, Let's just have a little chat. How about mm. we just talk to each other like people? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, you made me think of something which is called the Oxford sandwich, which is a little bit different. That's where you say something positive, then you slip something <laughs> negative in, and then... <laughs> I guess you're coming at it at an even approach of a little of this, a little of that. So let's talk about how we understand a culture to begin with. We have the personal perspective. You and I are making parts and pieces of an organization, of a culture, of workforce, of, of whatever that organizational structure is. But how would an organization try to approach a better way of awareness and understanding of each other? Well, uh, one good way is to, um, for example, video a team meeting and analyze it as a team afterwards and see how do we communicate as a team, because communication is key. Um, another way is to do a, a cultural assessment uh, to understand uh, where we're coming from culturally. And um, in the, the, the approach that I use, I talk about linear cultures who do one thing at a time, multi-active cultures who are more emotional and people-oriented, and then the listening cultures, uh, which I'd call reactive. And um, And so how do we learn to communicate with each other. And if you picture that as a sort of triangle, then if I'm in the linear corner and I've got to engage with someone who is multi-active or reactive, then what are the things that I need to do? And, and that self-awareness is really important. And I know this answer, but I'm, I'm extracting it from you. How would an organization set that up to even start? I'm sure there's probably a familiar term to most organizations in the past 40 years is the Briggs-Myers test to see where you're at and your personality. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about something deeper than that. 
Well, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily deeper, but I would say certainly from the th things that I do in my work, uh, focusing on the cultural dimension, the fact that you know culture is something which is deeply embedded in us, and um, we've developed our own assessment. Um, it's called Culture Active. Through it, you can do a sort of 20-minute, uh, half-an-hour um, self-assessment questionnaire, and then you get a result which positions you on a triangle and enables you to compare yourself with people who are different from you. That could be different cultures, but as a facilitator, it's also uh, comparing different personalities as well. Uh, and what's really interesting is that mm. if you go beyond self-assessment, this is where it really gets deeper, and also get people to do mini-assessments on each of their colleagues, then you can start to see what are the gaps between how I see myself and how I'm viewed by the team. This be considered, and I've heard it used in some personnel management as a 360 view, right? You're, you're trying to understand how you think you present yourself versus how you're received. That's right. So it's just, we, we actually have called it a 360, but we're looking for a, a, a better name because 360 yes. is quite often about performance. We're just talking about different mm -hmm. types. And I mean, I'll just give you one example. I was working with a team recently with a French leader, many different nationalities. And when we did a debrief on what we call the 360, um, the first thing was uh, about uh, talking and listening. And in his self-assessment, he came out as very strongly a listener. And the team came back with their assessment, and they had him as, you talk most of the time. <laughs> and so it was very simple. But then he asked them, well, what? He said, but I'm a very good listener. I just can't understand it. And one of them said, you remember that last meeting we had where I was trying to tell you something, and while I was talking you were sending texts on your mobile phone. He said, yeah, but I was listening. I can multitask. He said, but that's not my perception. My perception is that you're not really interested in what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. And so the key there is that he then makes a commitment. He says, in the future, I'll stop doing that. I've heard that. I had a, a colonel I used to work with in the Army that when he was having a meeting, at that time, the military used BlackBerry. Mm he would just stop talking if somebody was fidgeting with some device. I really kind of felt like, oh, come on. In this day and age, I mean, we're we're all doing 20 different things simultaneously all the time. Uh, I thought it was a little, a little much. I think I would have just kept rolling, but I get that. And especially that's face-to-face, -face, right? So the face-to-face -face thing, there's an energy that seems to be a bit different than video con teleconference. I guess, what's the key ingredient going forward? You've talked about what we lack, and, and really it's the, is it social context? I, 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 what would be the frame, well, how would you frame that? What's in this linear world? What's missing and how would you approach? Well, I think a lot of us do lose focus, don't we? Um, because of all the distractions, and that's harmful to ourselves, but it's even more harmful in a way in a social context. I mean, you gave your example. I had an even more extreme one, and this was I was about to start a workshop um, in Denmark, and uh, there were mainly Danes on it. And the Danish boss, because the Danes can be quite direct, said before this workshop starts, he said, if I see anyone touching their laptop, it was in the summer, there's an open window there, it goes out of the window. 
And uh, <laughs> and he said, I really mean that. No one touched their laptop. Um, I mean, that was quite a, a harsh way of putting it. But I think, um, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the things, obviously, in my job and then also when I worked in radio, I've met a lot of very senior people. They've arrived at the top of their profession um, or, you know, in 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 music, theatre, all the people who used to come in, you know, they, these are real achievers. One thing that I've noticed with people who really make an impact on you is that they listen. Yeah. And you feel that when you're talking to them, that you are the only important thing for them at that moment. So I think being in the moment and listening mm. And in a time where we do have all these distractions, yeah. it's not easy, but we need to do it. Let's go back to your example. You said you actually re take the recording of the meeting and then you do an assessment. How did this all play out? Do you give mm. all the participants a check sheet or a rubric to grade themselves? Um, well, I haven't done it in that formal way. I think we you just play it and replay it okay. and let people comment. And you know, how do you think your reply was there? And I think when people see it, they, they're honest about it. You know, uh, you know, it could be someone who said, I yeah. thought I contributed a lot to this meeting beforehand. And then they say, gosh, I didn't really, did I? Mm. <laughs> or I, I, I wasn't really listening there. And, um, you know, oh, I can't believe how often I interrupted. And, you know, I, I didn't realize I was tapping my pen on the table. And you start to notice those things. So those, those are some basic speech communications guidelines right there because in your first public speaking course in college is they want to record you and see all these things that you don't know you do mm. right you're unaware uh so i think that's a brilliant idea uh and that's something that's a low-hanging fruit for any organization i think could just hey the next one we're going to record and we're all going to look at it i think that's a great advice mm. to see what it looks like and feels like yeah, I, I agree. And it's so simple. It's so easily done. Listen, a, f a few years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, a guy in, from the Royal Air Force in the UK, because, you know, I know your military background. And he was a squadron leader of the Red Arrows, the this fantastic aerobatics team that we have. I asked him, I said, how do you get this team to work so well? Because, you know, you can't afford to make many mistakes when you're doing high-speed aerobatics. And he said, we video every single performance, and then afterwards we go straight to the debriefing room, we watch the video together, and he said, I, as the leader, begin by pointing out the things that I did wrong or I could have done better. And then everyone else, because I've spoken first, will then contribute. Yeah. You bring in a, a key ingredient, I think, to any culture, and that's leadership. Yeah, absolutely. The leadership will set the tone. Lead by example. And if you yes. show your own vulnerability and the fact that you can make mistakes, then others are much more likely to follow suit. Yeah, that's a great baseline foundational piece for anybody looking to uh, establish a strong or a responsive, mm. I'll say, culture. Um, what's the biggest issue do you see now going forward in the world? And I'll, I'll just say in loosely, it doesn't have to be work context, but just as humans on the planet. I do think that it's this polarization of views, the fact that if someone believes things differently from you, very many people then take that as a personal insult and they start to attack the person 
And I think this is obviously yeah. <laughs> fueled by social media, particularly, where you have algorithms which direct you to people and ideas which are the ones that you already had. And so I think social media mm. accentuates difference by putting you in a in a sort of bubble without your even realizing it. And so that when you do encounter someone yeah. who has different views, you think they're crazy. You think, how on earth can you possibly believe this? Nobody believes this. So it's an almost an automated digital tribalism. Absolutely. That's a good way of describing it. Because as you're saying that, I, in my own experience, I, I think everybody on planet, for the most part, has had this kind of a feeling. That is a baseline to tribalism to me, is that we are, whatever the word is, we are right, we are, you know, you're wrong. And it's it's really peeled back the social protections that we had not long ago, where I come from a sales background, and my dad always said, two things you never talk about, politics and religion. Now we've done a 180, and that's all we talk about. Yeah. Politics and religion, yeah. you know, and it's like at the it's this loggerhead all the time of aggravation and agitation. It's almost become a sport. Absolutely, and and I think that COVID has only accentuated it yeah. because yeah. you know obviously it falls into two main camps, and if someone is in a different camp from you on something which you may consider a, a matter of life and death, then it it becomes really aggressive really really serious yeah and yes. um i think that it's going to have quite an effect in the future on how societies are organized it's going to have an effect on democracy mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. way um and um you know i hope we can get beyond it at some point and that's why i say forgiveness is so important Let's all add fuel to the forgiveness pile, and uh, hopefully it'll just keep getting bigger and stronger as, as we understand as you know as a culture, uh, regardless of geographic or ethnicity, that it is a global house. It is we are all connected, and all of those effects of this digital tribalism has an impact, and it's not it's not worthy of our time. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. What's your definition of knowledge management? Um, a good question. <laughs> uh, uh, let me sort of rephrase it in a way which suits the sort of field that I'm in, which is cross-culture and cross-cultural management. I think it's more straightforward to manage knowledge which is more concrete the knowledge that i deal with in my work is tacit and it's um it's under the surface you know cross-culturalists often depict culture as an iceberg it's all the stuff under the surface and of course it's affected by our own preconceptions of the right and wrong way of doing things and i think Culture, it's a, it's a fuzzy topic, and it's, it's not easy to measure. And so if we can try in some way to measure it, then we can manage it. And, you know, often in organizations, cultural knowledge is passed on implicitly, and it's trying to move the implicit into something that is more explicit and visible.
So for me, that would be knowledge management and, and culture. Where does this culture responsibility sit in an organization? Who owns it? Well, I think it should come from the top to, to begin with. And in fact, um, I'm always fascinated by the number of Indians who are in senior positions or CEOs of global companies. And there are many examples. And one, the most famous, I suppose, is Satya Nadella uh, from uh, Microsoft, been very successful at Microsoft. And I heard an interview with him recently, and he said, you know, my title is CEO, Chief Executive Officer, but I like to think the C in my title stands for culture. Ooh. I'm the cultural executive officer. And I think that's extremely wise. And I think one of the reasons why Indians have tended to do very well at the head of um, global organizations is that India is itself a very diverse country, extremely diverse. And they sort of have a natural instinct or something that's built up through that experience that enables them to manage diverse views and beliefs very well. And traditionally, Hinduism mm. has been very tolerant. Mm -hmm. um, it has a lot of forgiveness. Yeah, the, the monoculture versus the multiculture. Absolutely. Very good. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a blast. Thanks for putting on your radio voice for today. <laughs> it's, it's my normal voice. I can't help it. <laughs> because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.